Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. In which our heroine sets off on a round-the-world journey by bicycle. Tigers, war, champagne, controversy, and the dangers of the open road. Will she girdle the earth and win her wager? Stay tuned. The end. Let's talk about Annie Londonderry. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1894, the pneumatic hammer and the bottle opener were both patented. Horse racing starting gate and the vaccination for diphtheria were both invented. The first polio epidemic hit the United States. Coca-Cola was first sold in bottles. London's Tower Bridge opened after eight years of construction. And London's first fine for drunk driving was given to a taxi driver. The 1893 World's Fair serial killer H.H. Holmes was arrested in Boston and would be hanged two years later. Norman Rockwell, Nikita Khrushchev, and Martha Graham were born. Robert Louis Stevenson and Amelia Bloomer both died. And in 1894, Annie Kupchowski sets off to become the first woman to bicycle around the world. Annie Cohen was born sometime in 1870, somewhere in Latvia. We like to be very specific. She's the third of the five children of Lieb and Basha Cohen, also known as Levi and Beatrice Cohen. Here in the present, Latvia is one of those three tiny countries just at the northwest of Russia, right above Poland. Here's a geography mnemonic from me to you. They're in alphabetical order. Estonia, then Latvia, then Lithuania. That has actually come in very handy. I never knew that. So the Russians under Tsar Alexander II were not so fond of the Jewish population. The Jewish population actually had been kind of corralled into a relatively large area called the Pale of Russia for a long time. But right before the family emigrated to America, there was some agitation, a wave of anti-Semitism percolating throughout. A lot of Jewish people actually moved to Siberia willingly, where land was on offer. Even more moved to South Africa or England, or in this case, to the United States. They got out just in time because the laws started to crack down heartily in 1881. There were many pogroms, which was kind of organized assassination of groups of Jewish people. Jews were no longer allowed to go to college. They were no longer allowed to serve in any level of government. So I think they were smart to get out, although they did end up kind of out of the frying pan into the fire because the family moved to Boston, which of all cities in America was one of the most anti-Semitic cities. Yeah, and they would have come in through New York. Ellis Island was still 17 years away. They would have come in through Castle Garden, which was the immigration station in the United States. So they would have come in through there. Why they didn't stay in New York, I have no idea. And it was puzzling me. Because why would you go up to Boston unless you knew somebody there? And that might have been what it is. They were the vanguard. At the time they got there, there were less than 20,000 Jewish people in Boston as a whole. And they and a whole bunch of other kinds of immigrants were kind of crammed into an area called the West End. Have you ever seen pictures of tenement life. There's a famous photographer named Jacob R.I.I.S. I don't know how to say his last name, has a book out called How the Other Half Lives. 
and it's tenements mostly in New York City, but I can't imagine there are any different 10 to 12 people in kind of a one-room apartment, very minimal sanitation. The crowding was extreme. The maintenance on these apartments was not very good, but... The neighborhood was so diverse. There were people from everywhere. There were Armenians and Greeks and Irish immigrants and Lebanese and Syrians and Ukrainians. Those people are sort of familiar. Jews, Italians, and pretty much all of the African-American population of Boston were all in this one area. Space was tight and, and times were hard mm-hmm. for pretty much everybody. But it was better than wherever they left from. At the time... To become a U.S. citizen, all you really needed to do was live here for two years. Then you could just present yourself at any court, state, local, or federal, and just say, I would like to become a citizen, and it was granted. And any children that you had under the age of 21 automatically became citizens as well. Right when you got here, you had to file uh, kind of like an intent to become a citizen, and then after your waiting period... That's when you just show up at court. And if you're white, we should specify it was hey presto. But if you were a person of color, not so much. So after two years, the Cohen family were all U.S. citizens. So easy. That's amazing. So Papa and Mama, other than them having become a citizen, their lives are kind of uncertain to us. There's not a lot going on. They were Orthodox Jews, probably kept a kosher house. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot about how they made their living. Although in this time and place, in this neighborhood, it was very common for women to work outside the home because just to keep these large families fed took more than one income Mm -hmm. at this level of society in this class, you know. Um, So probably Mama had some sort of job. And if not, she was watching children for other women in the building who had jobs. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, we are also unclear about our subject, Annie's education, but it seems that just like during the times of Laura Ingalls Wilder out on the prairie, girls might have gotten more elementary education than the boys did. You know, out on the prairie, the big boys only went to the winter session. That's when they weren't needed on the farm. And among the Orthodox Jewish community, the boys had obligations at religious school in addition to secular school. So they divided their time. But girls were sent to the free public schools, and they were just expected to get their religious education from their mothers and other women relatives and did not go to religious school. So they actually got more of the read and write and arithmetic than the boys did. There was compulsory education in Boston and had been for about 40 years. From 6 to 14, all children were supposed to attend school. 14 is about eighth grade. So we're looking at elementary education, although I must say there was an exemption for poverty and it was vague. So if your parents deemed your income necessary, you got pulled out of school. Yeah. Well, she had come over at age four or five. So right when they're getting established, she would have been required to attend school. But she would also have needed to learn the language because they spoke Yiddish and they needed to learn English. You know, we've talked about this before, how the kids learn the language and bring it home for the parents. My child goes to... um, a school that has a large immigrant population from assorted places, um, Senegal, curiously, and Hmm. um, also Central American countries. And the second generation children, even as young as my son, who's in eighth grade, are often the only ones in their family that can translate. So they go to medical appointments with their parents. The parents always have to be in touch with them in case there's a traffic stop or something. Mm -hmm. It's a very responsible and stressful kind of lifestyle that they're going through. Mm -hmm. I find it very eye-opening. 
Well, given what she does later, I have to assume she had some type of education. Yes. So let's assume that she went up to eighth grade and whether or not she went to high school. Mm. Don't know. When she's about 16 is where the thread of her story picks up. Her older sister, Sarah, had been married. She was living up in Maine, so she's not in the Boston area. And when Annie is 16, first her father dies. And then only two months later, her mother followed him. We don't know what they died of. Um, I was looking up epidemics from 1887 in Boston. There wasn't any. But the highest cause of death in Boston was pneumonia and tuberculosis. So if the family wanted to stay together, Annie and her slightly older brother, Bennett, at 20 years old, were going to have to instantly become the adults in the family. They had a 10 and an 8-year-old brother and sister to raise. And so you got to accept the mantle of adulthood early. Bennett was a reporter and an ad salesman for a newspaper, and he had just gotten married to his wife, Bertha. And Annie took the classic path to security. We have said this many times before. There's not a lot of opportunity. And she married Simon Max Kopchowski, who liked to go by Max, so we will respect his wishes. (laughs) (laughs) He was a used clothing peddler, also Orthodox Jewish, just like her papa, and she began to keep a kosher home. And Annie and her husband and Bennett and his wife lived in the same building, if not in the very same apartment, um, along with their younger brother and sister. It's kind of an all skate. It's like a community parenting. And then they decided to fill up the place just a little bit more. A honeymoon baby came along nine months after they got married. Bertha Malky, who they called Molly, again, with these Irish names. Uh, (laughs) So that was their first child. And then over the next three years, Annie gave birth to two more children, Libby and Simon. Now she's a mom of three and she's 20 years old. Oh, my. And in between and during, Annie worked selling newspaper ad space, both in her brother's department at his newspaper, the Boston Evening Transcript, where he had become the boss so he could set the terms and hire the people. And she also sold ad space for several others. That is a a job where you can kind of double dip at one place. Like, while I'm here, would you also like ad space in this blah, blah, blah. And her (laughs) granddaughter said once that if Annie wanted to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge, you would buy it, even if you had to mortgage everything you owned. (laughs) She was persuasive and just charming and dramatic. My husband calls that good in the room. He is also good in the room. Oh, your husband is very good in the room, but that's a great way to describe her. She was little. She's 5'3", maybe about 100 pounds, dark hair, brown eyes. So she probably doesn't look like she's going to try and, you know, get you to give everything that you have to her. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, I think you have that ability too, Beckett. Not that you use it for evil, but I'm just, not that Andy did either. (laughs) Wow, there's a hole I'm falling into. (laughs) No, no, you're good. Uh, Being underestimated is a power, actually. Yes, yes. And I've seen people do it to you and I just laugh. Like, (laughs) I see them start to talk to you like little lady you and I'm like, oh, dear. Uh, Oh, you don't realize that inside my head I'm clapping my hands. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing about being super intelligent and in a little box is that she just chafed, chafed, chafed at her life. The constant work, the sheer repetition. I did not want to spend my life at home with a baby under my apron every year because that's where she's headed. In the air, circling around society, we've covered her. Nellie Bly, episode 20. Talk about a Wayback Machine. Be kind about the audio quality. (laughs) 
<laughs> who um, went around the world in 72 days as a stunt. And her competitor, Elizabeth Bisland, going the opposite direction, equally for a stunt. And when Annie was about 13 in the newspapers, there was a man named Thomas Stevens who had taken off on his own around the world journey on a penny farthing bicycle. You know the ones? It's got this giant four foot front wheel and a little tiny back wheel. There's no chain. <laughs> My brother actually bought a reproduction penny farthing when we were in high school and he he rode it and he taught me how to ride it. Yeah. I didn't, Although that was a long time ago, I just recently learned that it was named after a penny and a farthing, the coins. That That's never awesome. clicked in my head. Yeah. He was way better at it than I was. I was very timid. I <laughs> wish that we had, um, I wish that we had had phone, like that would be a picture, wouldn't it? That oh, I, I would love oh to my put gosh. Up. I have a picture of me getting on it. I will put it in the show notes. Friends. I'm so excited. I've never yeah. seen it. Well, I'm like <laughs> leaning against our van for Cheater. support. Well, no, I went out. Uh, it was like when I was first learning how to sit on it. You have to learn. You know, I had to get comfortable because I'm only 5'2". It's a very big bicycle. I can't even imagine balancing on it. I'm trying to learn the unicycle. My brother rode a unicycle too, and he juggled. So if you could do that, you'll take his place. I'm not going to juggle. What I'm going to do is get out at the skate park. Just oh. randomly and casually just get out on that unicycle and ride around like, yeah, whatever. I'm, go I'm out. Oh, my gosh. There's a viral video right there. <laughs> you and your like four inch heels. <laughs> I have to tell you, I'm kind of literally blown away right now because out of the entire population of the United States, I am. <laughs> I know, I guess, two people who can ride a penny farthing. Uh, I, what are the chances? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, anyway, um, I'm just imagining how hard it is to ride a penny farthing without pitching onto your face. And this man went through Europe, through the Middle East, through India, through China, through Japan. He actually pedaled that thing. I mean, don't get me wrong. He took a boat occasionally, et cetera. But he pedaled it for 13,500 miles. And he published a book called Around the World on a Bicycle. And you can read the whole thing at Gutenberg. And it reads like a travelogue. It's very interesting. Um, sort of full of cheerful racism. Just be warned. He... <laughs> Cheerful um, racism. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's all I can say about it. It's not malicious. It's just, I'm just going to quote the Chinaman. He brings a jar of thin Chinese ketchup that tastes something like Limburger cheese smells. I immediately beg of him, take it somewhere where presumably its benign influence will fail to reach me. <laughs> so it's all written like that. It's just hilarious. So I liked reading it, but you have to be ready for him to call people things and to be very insensitive to other people's cultures. I'm just saying. Well, it was the 1870s, so. So he was famous. Daring do was everywhere in the air. It was trendy, but relatively unpopulated as a field, if you get my meaning. It's a perfect storm of inspiration. Cycling, in general, was um, pretty much a new trend that the conservative fathers regarded as, quote, Public intoxication. <laughs> Sign me up for that. Let's just take a minute and look at the little history of women cycling. Bicycles were invented in the early 1800s, and they were invented for men. And back then, it was like those training bikes we give our kids, the wooden bikes with the wooden wheels and no pedals, and they can just kind of walk along to learn their balance. That's how they were for like 30 years before another style of bicycle came, a bigger wheeled bicycle. And then after that, this is where the women come in, a velocipede, which was a front wheel, much larger than the back, and they were like a tricycle. So 
women didn't have to balance too hard to ride them. Their skirts might not be getting caught in things. Queen Victoria herself bought two of them, which earned the contraption the name a royal. So now Queen Victoria is in on the game. So Queen Victoria thinks they're good. This thing's going to take off. So that's when they come to the United States. Women just wanted to get on these bicycles so badly, but a proper lady has to ride side saddle. You can't ride side saddle on a bicycle until the early 1880s, which again, this is your perfect storm for Annie. A new style bicycle called a safety came out and both tires are about the same size. Women could actually get on it. It's very much like our bikes now, chain driven. There's pedals and women are like, yes, Finally, what this bike did for women is it gave them freedom that they had never had before. They could go any place they wanted to, whenever they wanted to, under their own power. I'm sure the fathers are like, uh, red flag. Oh, big time red flag. Yeah, and then the women are cruising down the hill behind them going, wee! (laughs) (laughs) Also happening at this time is that first wave of feminism. So women are starting to say, hey, I've got rights in this world. I have power that I didn't realize. What can I do with that? I'll ride this bike. And all the suffragists were like totally into the bicycle. Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Susan B. Anthony were totally behind cycling. They thought it was the greatest thing to happen to women since I don't even know what, the bloomer maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, like you said, the men hated this. There was a group of men in New York City that organized themselves and they vowed to never talk to any women that they saw riding a bicycle. It's like, that'll show them, right? Can you see these men just sitting around, cigars out of their mouth? And again, there's the woman riding down the hill. Whee! <laughs> yeah, and exactly, they self-selected. It's like, that's exactly the men you don't want to talk to and they've made it very convenient for you to tell the difference. That's see, right. so they think it's a threat and we accept it. That's very nice. Thank you for <laughs> identifying yourself in that way. I know. Cycling is in the air. Adventure is in the air. Like crazy random stunt projects are in the air, but it's a giant leap. It really is from enjoying the stories of others' adventures and deciding to go on one herself. But that is just what Annie did. Recently, we had the opportunity to try HelloFresh. And let me tell you, I am feeling so accomplished right now. HelloFresh made it so easy for me with their pre-measured ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards that came right to my door in this special insulated box. The meals are ready in under 30 minutes and they use no more than two pots or pans each, which I consider a win. There's three plants you can choose from and you can change it anytime. Veggie, classic, and family. I got the veggie box and immediately got out of my comfort zone with this Korean dish called bibimbap. This was a new one to me. I'm all fondue and tacos around here. And I was 100% blown away with this ginger jasmine rice. Horizons were expanded. And I'm feeling so different about zucchinis right now. I'm actually going to plant some in the garden. I loved it so much. HelloFresh makes it easy to conquer your kitchen with deliciously simple recipes. And you can do it too. Right now, for $80 off your first First month of HelloFresh, just go to HelloFresh.com slash HistoryChicks80. Again, for $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash HistoryChicks80. Chapter 2 
Annie started to appear in newspapers in February, the year she was 24. And here's how the story went. Two rich businessmen had bet each other that a woman could slash could not bicycle around the world. Now, here's the thing. (laughs) (laughs) Not very many years before, there was a writer who basically said the same thing. These two unknown people had bet that he couldn't bicycle around the world. He went by the pseudonym of Paul Jones. And only four months into this trip, which was very, very difficult, he admitted to the world that the whole thing had been a fraud and a sham and a fake and there'd never been a bet, etc. And here Annie is pretty much recreating the entire premise out of whole cloth. Paul Jones was from Boston. He was a Harvard student, so it would have been local news to her. And she does work in the newspaper industry. I know, but to roll out the exact same scenario as this particular prototype seems interesting to me. So two Boston sugar merchants who, no telling, bet either $10,000 or $20,000, either for or against the possibility that she could finish this. So there's either that wager happening or... The two more cynical interpretations that this whole thing was a PR stunt by the bicycle manufacturer with whom she had a relationship because of ad sales or simply a naked search for fame on the part of our fair adventurous. I'm going to throw another organization in there, and that's the Women's Christian Temperance Union. I just feel like their fingers were in this for some reason. (laughs) Well, they were all about promotion of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, so the bet, I want to go back to the bet, such as it was, had some weirdly specific restrictions. She had to be back in 15 months. I don't know why. She had to return with $5,000 that she had earned on the way, but she can't work as a journalist because that's the easy way out to just sell your story. Fine. You're supposed to only leave with the clothes on your back and a bicycle, of course, and you cannot accept gifts. You cannot speak any language but English, which was very handy because Annie spoke... English. And Yiddish, that's it. That's not going to take her too far. So she would leave in May, she said, off to glory and to prove women could do whatever men could do, which of course endeared her to the suffragist population in general. She was given a Columbia bicycle, which weighed 42 pounds and only had one gear, which is just like a beach cruiser. I have a beach cruiser for going (laughs) up and down this trail we have called the trolley trail. And it weighs 25 pounds, which to me is so irritating. By the way, it's all fun and games on the way downhill to the glass of wine at the end of the trolley trail. And then you're faced <laughs> with dragging your Alec back up the hill with the 25-pound beach cruiser. I mean, it's thigh-busting. Um, that's all I'm going to say about that. So if you would like quadricep, um, please feel free to get that kind of bike. Like any bike you get out of a kiosk in your city, you know, next time you pass one, just kind of lift it up. That is the beach cruiser type of weight. That's only about 25 pounds. So she had a 42 pound bicycle that she has to work with. And Annie didn't train at all, at all, at all. She learned how to ride a bike, then called it a day. I mean, the end. (laughs) And just days before she left, it wasn't like she, this was part of her, you know, long range plan. Let me get on the bicycle and ride it around the city. It could have been publicity too. I would just like to put that part with asterisks around it. She learned how to ride a bike and stopped training. (laughs) Well, so as the weeks passed, the excitement grew. Unfortunately, in May, Annie's younger brother died suddenly at 17. He'd been basically her son for half his life. And so her departure was delayed for just over a month, probably based on his death. But at last, on June 25th, 
1894, 24-year-old Annie Kopchovsky stood at the Massachusetts State House in front of a crowd of 500 people who had come to see her off on her journey. Annie was dressed not like you would think of cyclists would be dressed. She was dressed like a lady. She had on a long, thick skirt, a dark jacket with puffy sleeves that Anne Shirley Cuthbert would have loved. (laughs) (laughs) She had a little hat on. She did not have bloomers, which had been around for many years and many women were adapting to when they were riding bicycles, but she didn't. When asked why she didn't wear bloomers, she said, I have enough cheek to go around the world, but I have not enough cheek for that. (laughs) I love that quote. Oh yeah, she's got enough cheek. (laughs) So the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union presented her with a penny for luck. Oh no, said Annie. And I can only imagine if you've ever been to an old-fashioned melodrama, you know, but (laughs) but I can't pay the rent, you know. Oh no, I cannot accept a penny. I cannot accept any money I haven't earned. Then, my dear, speak your piece for the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So she gave her a speech and she got her penny. <laughs> and a white ribbon to wear on her jacket. <laughs> More lucratively, the Londonderry Lithia Springwater Company put an advertising banner on the back of her bike and paid $100, which is almost $3,000 in today's money. So that is good seed money, you know, for bed and biscuits to be on your way with. And maybe also for using their name as her last name during the trip. I can't verify if this came about naturally because the word Londonderry showed up on her bike. And so people started calling her Annie Londonderry or if it was part of that contract. I'm just not sure. As part of her speech, I thought I had read that she said she was going to take the name as well to totally represent them. Ah, very good. Yeah. Well, what a, you know, what a coincidence. She's asking, is there anybody who would like to buy space on my bicycle? And there's the London Dairy Lithia Spring Water Company already with crisp money and a sign. What a coincidence. Hmm. How did that happen? Hmm. So here's a tiny history of Lithia Water. The first thing I would like to say is that 7-Up, which you're all familiar with from the Dorito and Soda aisle at the grocery store, used to be called Lithiated Lemon Lime Soda. And at a soda fountain, you could actually order a Lithia Coke. It didn't come in bottled Coke, but you could get it at the um, soda fountain. They could, they could make it for you. It's very alkaline water. And all you'll read about it is that it will remove toxins. It's good for hangovers. And I'm guessing, it was super fashionable about now, that Lithia water is the acai berry of the time. Like it will cure all. It is so good for you. It balances. It's nebulously beneficial. Uh Well, maybe not just for the time because you can actually buy it still. And you can go to a resort in Oregon and take the waters. And you can go to Lithia Springs, Georgia and drink it right out the drinking fountain in the center of town. And Ashland, Oregon as well. (laughs) (laughs) So it's still around. I cannot imagine it smells as bad as the Sulphur Springs that I was in for three days and wore for months afterward. Um, (laughs) But I would assume it doesn't smell awesome. No, I don't think so. The uh, Lithia spring water rabbit hole that I fell down was very deep. (laughs) (laughs) So the president of the Women's Christian Temperance Union set her off with the blessing. May she set a noble example wherever she goes. And Annie rode down the streets uh, with a hundred bucks, one penny, and a change of undies, and evidently a pearl-handled revolver in the pocket of her skirt off into history. Notably, not there to see her off. 
her husband Max, or any of her kids. Possibly because this was only the symbolic departure. She had some loose ends to tie up. She had to go to a photo session. She had to get her promo literature together because she's planning to sell autographed photos of herself on the way to make money, which is supremely confident. I know. But um, so possibly because Max didn't want her to go. They had three kids under five, which she definitely did not mention in the press. Somebody's wife being daring with his permission was one thing, although his relatives described him as an extraordinarily passive man. So we knew who wore the literally wore the pants, even though she didn't wear the pants. So your husband's permission is one thing, but abandoning one's children is bad PR. And even the suffragists would look askance at you, mm-hmm. I think. So I'm guessing the sister-in-law Bertha had charge of all five kids from here on. That's where I would guess they were, is yeah. in the charge of a relative. So eventually Annie did say goodbye for real. And a couple of days after her ceremonial departure, she headed off out of Boston with no fanfare. (laughs) She's heading south out of Boston. She's heading towards Rhode Island. For the first 20 miles, the road was Tarmagadam all the way down to Dedham, Massachusetts. Then the road turned to gravel. It wasn't loose gravel. It was packed gravel, but it was a lot more difficult to ride on than the previous 20 miles. Here's the thing, though. She had a bicyclist guidebook that told her the best routes for bicycles, Um, some obstacles you might encounter, the state of the road, sightseeing, etc., where one could get a meal. If she followed the routes in her guidebook, she was more likely to run into fellow cyclists. And her goal, as far as possible, was to hook up with other riders for safety. It's just the convoy system, the way you might escape from pirates or travel through the woods in medieval times, you know, safety in numbers. It's very smart. And so regardless of the state of the roads, it was smarter to kind of stay with what was in the guidebook. Annie rolled into Providence nine hours after she left. She's ridden about 50 miles that first day. That's impressive. That used to take me, I mean, even in modern cars. Now, keep in mind, I was not moving most of the time, (laughs) but that used to be my daily commute from just outside of Providence to Boston. And I would say I considered myself lucky if my commute was one and a half hours each direction. And you had paved roads the whole way. (laughs) I had paved roads and I probably went just as fast as she did. (laughs) I.e. not. Not. (laughs) Yeah. So she showed up at Providence and, you know, assorted quality of roads. And she worked in the gift shop of a hotel for her room and board. And also they gave her $50 for being, quote, a drawing card. And then she lectured on the cultivation of physical beauty. She claimed to have studied medicine for two years. Okay, this is only the first of these outlandish claims that would not stand up to five seconds of a Google search. But as far as the papers go in this world, the philosophy seemed to be, will it sell papers? And she was very convincing. You have to remember that. She had that, what did Chris call it? She was good in the room. I think it's funny that she chose this topic of physical beauty because the conservative fathers of America were trying to dissuade young women from bicycling by warning them against the possibility of developing a horrifying condition. Dun, dun, dun. Call bicycle face. (laughs) Here's what bicycle face is. Overexertion and the upright position on the wheel, which is what they called bicycles, and the unconscious effort to maintain one's balance tend to produce a wearied and exhausted bicycle face, usually flushed, but sometimes pale, with lips drawn and the beginning of dark circles under the eyes, always with an expression of weariness. 
They went even farther. While she was on her adventure, there was an article that was published in the New York World, and it was 41 rules for women riding bicycles. So I guess it's the, if we can't beat them, we'll control them, chain of thought. I'm not sure. But it was rules like, don't faint on the road. Don't coast. It's dangerous. Don't boast of your long rides. Don't wear jewelry, lace boots, white kid gloves, and you should opt for silk instead. Or let your hair hang down your back. Every article of attire must match. (laughs) And please do not brag in front of men. I will link you up to it, but it's ridiculous. (laughs) Even darker and only to be spoken in a whisper, the vibrations of the seat on the road could lead to, at best, kidney failure or at worst, pleasurable sensations. (laughs) (laughs) I read that. I had to put my book down. I was laughing so hard. But what they're really worried about is, as we said before, unchaperoned females wheeling about the country. Also, the mechanics of bike construction simply called out for dress reform, which is another thing that the fathers of America were not comfortable with. So basically, freedom for women was the real problem. We can all see that. So change Mm -hmm. was uncomfortable. For men. Meanwhile, the women are riding down the hill again. Whee! <laughs> now, in their defense, I will say coasting is dangerous because yeah. a lot of bikes don't have brakes. So your R- choice is fall off or put your delicate kid boots down on the rough ground and burn the sole of your shoe off. Well, there was a bar um, on the in the front of the bike. I don't know if it was on the front wheel or behind it, but... These are, you know, like a one-speed bicycle. You have to pedal the entire time. So if you're coasting faster than you can pedal, you have to lift your feet up. So there was actually a bar on her bike where she could rest her feet going down a hill. And she did have one hand brake. Wasn't the brakes of today. It was called a spoon brake. So it was just imagine like a spoon on the tire to slow it down rather than the two sides pushing down on the tire like we have now. Her bike was fancy. (laughs) I will say, here's the trouble when you are coasting and the pedals are going around. Your skirts, if you're a lady person, often got caught in the pedals and that would throw you off. I mean, it would throw you off instantly because the tangle of fabric would instantly stop that bike and you would go A, over tea kettle. (laughs) into the road, which was usually brick or cobblestone or otherwise not amenable to the delicate road rash face. That's bicycle face. Uh, (laughs) If you really want to know. And when you're going down, you don't go off the bicycle. Like now we'd like go over the handlebars and fly off. You're attached to it. It's coming with you. Yeah. That's a lot of injury right there. So I can definitely see bicycle booty which no one mentions if you're riding for a long time. And if Annie suffered from that, maybe the petticoats acted as a cushion. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Pleasant. Well, she made it to New York City in only five days and then parked it, curiously, with some friends there for nearly a month at 208 East Broadway. And at first I thought, well, because I looked it up, an apartment in that building just sold for $1.1 million. Are these highfalutin friends? Which in case, yes, please hand me champagne for my bubble bath. But... (sighs) Unfortunately, no. This was less than a block from the future Henry Street settlement that we talked about on the Jane Addams podcast. This was the Lower East Side. This was very similar to the neighborhood she just left in Boston. Culturally diverse, full of immigrants, and poor. So it just was a welcome rest, I guess. She's not, you know, first time in the lap of lecturing it up. You no. Know? She also spent the time sewing herself a new bicycle riding outfit because she knew that that long skirt was just not going to cut it. She still didn't have enough cheek for bloomers, 
but she wore them underneath another skirt that she made that was shorter and um, not as voluminous. That was her plan is to go with a lighter outfit that she could just kind of hike up the skirt and use the bloomers when no one was watching and then drop it back down if there was people around. <laughs> the, the quote short skirt, by oh, the way, sure. came to the top of her shoes. Gasp. Yeah. The immodesty <laughs> and bloomers underneath in case of wind clutch the pearls and no corset. That's the part where you faint. Yes. Yeah. No she had corsets. To, she had to ditch that corset. My father used to call our first uh, sale of the season the shakedown cruise. Mm. You know, you got to get your muscles back. You got to remember what to do. That shakedown cruise from Boston to New York must have been miserable. <laughs> she didn't have any of the stamina, you know, you need for that kind of physical activity. Plus, she had those heavy garments on. Plus what she had, which was really invaluable for a trip like this, is ignorance. The ignorance is bliss department shows its full effect here. Okay. <laughs> I guess I'll just set out. I don't have to plan anything. Just point in that direction and go. I'm assuming that's how one does it. Mm-mm. Follow the road. <laughs> well, people lined the roads to see her off on the next part of her journey out of New York through hills and bad roads, unfortunately, up to Albany. Experienced cyclists were convinced, though I'm not sure they bet, because they're gentlemen as a class, that this was it. Because after almost a month and a half, she'd only gone this 150 miles to Albany. Honestly, even in that year, an experienced man cyclist, experienced being the key word, could do that in two days. Mm-hmm. Uh, in pants. But it was also extraordinarily hot. We're talking the middle of summer. It was 95 degrees with 86% humidity from what I read. Well, and that's miserable. You're right. I saw that statistic, though, and I have to confess that I wondered what the heck she'd been doing. And then I remembered that a month of that was actually non-travel time, Mm -hmm. which brought that a lot closer to a reasonable time frame. You know, so we go from a month and a half to 14 days. For an inexperienced cyclist, you know, that's actually kind of reasonable. When she had arrived and people asked her what her plans were, she said she was going to head south to Washington and meet with President Cleveland, you know, like you do. And then from (laughs) from Washington, she was going to go to Honolulu and then China, you know, leaving out just a few steps. (laughs) In actuality, she headed out of town and she went towards Washington, the George Washington Bridge. (laughs) Da-da-da! So some other things she didn't think of, in addition to just plain old sore booty and quadriceps situation, toilet facilities on the road. She had to be very creative about privacy and just mechanics, if you think about that. She had one full set of clothes in the heat, and there's no tide. There's no... (laughs) You know, Febreze, (laughs) there's not even any perfume. She was sleeping rough, which sounds romantic. There's nothing about that that sounds romantic. She's out by herself, no money. She could have had an apple for supper and then slept out underneath a wagon in the rain. That does not sound nice at all. (laughs) Well, sleeping under the stars sounds romantic, but sleeping in a pig barn does not sound so delightful. She was burning a lot of calories and didn't comprehend about replacing those with food. And and she ended up losing quite a lot of weight. Roads were not paved in many, many places. And so the only flat place to ride was the space between the tracks of the trains that were going opposite directions. Those places were maintained by the railroad. And so a lot of bicyclists would honestly risk death by riding down that center, you know, cinder pathway. Even Mr. Stevens would say, 
that he ended up kind of perching on the outside of railroad bridges with his bicycle sometimes to let the trains go by. That is a very real danger. The only thing mitigating that is that she doesn't have her AirPods in. She's not listening to a (laughs) podcast. I mean, she's got her ears in the game. But if a train was coming from two directions at once, I don't know if they even do that. I think how dangerous that would be if you're caught in the middle. I don't know. So there's that. And she also used the towpath for the Erie Canal, by the way. And normally when boy cyclists would go, it's just like skateboarders in parking lots, like angry people erupt out of places to yell and tell them to get out of there. <laughs> but they came out and it was a woman and they're like, mm, hello, ma'am. <laughs> Like I was fixing to unleash some words about you, but then as you got closer, I saw you had a skirt on and now I don't know what to say. Take my hat off to you. Have a nice day. Well, bicyclists scared the mules and the mules were the thing pulling those barges down the Erie Canal. And so a bicyclist would come by and the mules would start acting up and it would take half an hour to get everybody calmed down again to get back to work. And so cyclists were a real problem, Mm -hmm. but at least Annie got away with it. There was two things that I kept thinking about at this point. I'm thinking... Is her period stopping because she's doing all this physical activity? You know how that happens? Mm -hmm. Because that could be particularly messy on a bike trip like this. That was one thing I was thinking about, (laughs) especially when you're wearing dirty clothes to begin with. And then the other thing was she had all this thinking time. I don't know about you, but when I am like clogged for ideas, I'll go for a really long walk. So that physical activity and just being outside and the repetition of the steps or something, you know, gives me all these ideas. So I'm thinking that she's taking this trip and she's making plans that she hadn't made while she was in Boston, you know, what she's going to do next. Probably makes sense. For the first thing, I wonder, there is an online museum of menstruation. Maybe we can see if there's anything there I haven't yet about cycling. They Mm -hmm. would know. If anybody would know, they would know. (laughs) (laughs) So let's fall down that rabbit hole uh, in the show notes. (laughs) By the time she got to Chicago in September, she's a thousand miles into her journey. She had used up 20% of her allotted time. So the Earth is about 25,000 miles around. She's gone a thousand miles. I see a mathematical problem emerging. (laughs) And what you're facing outside of Chicago is the open prairie and then the Rocky Mountains in the winter, sister. She was already exhausted and discouraged. Really? Was she going to quit? That was certainly an option. So she's unfortunately got that whole press coverage of can a woman do what a man had done out there to live up to? And not to mention all that confidence she'd shown at the beginning. She kind of dug herself a little hole that she couldn't quit. So was she going to be a laughingstock and embarrass herself, you know, globally, she thought. Although, honestly, at this point, I don't think she was a global name. But nevertheless, are you going to put yourself out there as a subject of mockery. But what was her other option? Head to the West and die in a snowstorm? Mr. Stevens, I will say, crossed the Rocky Mountains under snow sheds that the railroad had made for their engines to go under. He actually went on the train tracks, jumping from railroad tie to railroad tie, which seems like the least relaxing way to ride a bicycle I can come up with. But he was under a roof most of the time through the Rocky Mountains. But it seems to me that she made a decision right here while she was wandering around Chicago. Speaking of walking around clearing your head, this trip was going to have to be more about the narrative and less about the physical effort. It was going to have to be style over substance. She was going to have to start working smarter and not harder because she was broken. And at the end of her rope with regard to this pushing through physically thing, a sponsorship tipped the balance. 
She walked into, now how she got there, I don't know. She walked into the Sterling Cycle Company and she came out back on track. She'd gotten a deal with them. They traded her 42-pound women's safety bike for a 20-pound men's bike that was custom-made for her? Question mark. Hmm. That's interesting. Well, okay. Here's the thing. The Sterling Cycle Works were the makers of the bike that Annie Oakley, I don't know what episode of ours that was, Annie Oakley, famous Annie Oakley, was already using a Sterling bike in her act for the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Her usage of that bike caused women to come in and ask about the bike. So when this Annie walks in and says, I'm on this kind of adventure, blah, 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 they have already experienced what women's sports marketing can do for Mm -hmm. their bike and its name. Talk about an untapped market. The women's bike business was going to be big. And so they didn't have a lot to lose. And it was an Annie, another Annie that they could use in their marketing plans. Annie Oakley was already on trading cards for them, you know, with her bicycle. So they could use her too, another Annie. It's like a theme. They immediately went and got the photography done. I'll tell you, they wasted no time on that. Also, the tire manufacturer that subcontracted for Sterling decided to add a sponsorship deal of their very own. So she now had functionally $3,500 in ad money on the table. These guys knew a marketing opportunity when they saw it. The independent ladies were going to med school. They were having careers and maybe one day they'd even vote this new creature called the new woman. This new breed of humanity that was, in fact, their target consumer. See, they're smart. Mm -hmm. And she's smart, too, for signing up for it, you know? She's a marketing genius, I think. I almost think it takes a lot of, um, how many is a Yiddish word, chutzpah, to be a marketing genius. You have to kind (laughs) of not care what people think of you. So that is a very important facet of her personality. Mm -hmm. One minor hiccup to this whole partnership made in heaven. The expert Model E bicycle that they offered her only came in a men's bike with a bar across the top because everybody that wanted to ride this technologically advanced bike was a man and they had never made a women's version. So Annie was going to have to take another radical step. She would have to ditch her skirts and go full bloomer or she couldn't ride this bike. Uh, She hadn't done it. Sorry, going full bloomer. (laughs) It's like an empowerment statement. I'm going full bloomer. Maybe we'll bring that back. (laughs) She hadn't done it before to legitimize her ride in the eyes of the people. And now she did it to publicize her ride. So it's kind of an indication of the way that her mind had changed in Chicago about how she was going to work with this operation. So publicity was going to be the king, not the sheer achievement of bicycling. So in an era when people would pour out of their houses just to see a woman in bloomers walking down the street at all, this was a very daring step to take. The fashion had already been changing, mostly in Europe, because remember, cycling started there first. In Europe, the women were like, we can't ride these skirts. We are going to make palazzo pants is how I think of them. We used to call them back in the 70s, elephant pants. (laughs) We used to call them gauchos, which is probably not politically correct. Oh, you're right. I never thought about that. Yes, you're right. (laughs) But that was what was going on in Europe. The serious women cyclists were wearing bloomers. There's no way around it. That's the best way. There's the least drag and it's comfortable and it's lighter. She took off 
from Chicago back to New York. Oh, that seems like a major step backwards. She's retracing her steps. All that trouble she'd gone through didn't count for, quote, the bet. Ah, bummer. She was going to have to start over. But this time, she was going to start on a boat to France. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, and I agree because I think the Third Love bras are perfect for me. Third Love uses data points generated by millions of women who've taken their Fit Finder quiz. I've taken it. You can go take it. You'll answer a few simple questions and find your perfect fit in 60 seconds. Third Love's team of expert fit stylists are dedicated to helping you find your perfect fit. They're available every day to help you via text or chat or even phone. Every customer has 60 days to wear their third love bra. You can wash it, you can wear it, you can put it to the test, and if you don't love it, return it. This is hands down the most comfortable bra I've ever worn. The straps don't slip. There's tagless. There's no itching. It's lightweight. The super thin memory foam is what makes it special. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone. So right now, they're offering our listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash chicks to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's third love. You need to spell it out. T-H-I-R-D-L-O-V-E dot com slash chicks for 15% off your perfect bra today. And we're leaving from Chicago with several hundred enthusiastic cyclists that escorted her out of town, many of them women. But she rode most of the way with just a very few cyclists on a one-on-one basis, some of them men. How about that, founding fathers? She's in a much better place going back to New York than she was coming from there. She might be going backwards, but I really think she's taking a huge step forward here. She knows the route now. She knows where to go. She knows where to stop. She knows what's ahead. She's 40 pounds lighter, 20 of weight and 20 of bike. She's got the muscles that she needs. She's got the stamina that she needs. Unlike before, when she had to sleep under bridges and in barns, now the Sterling bike dealers in each city were instructed to put her up. Have the ladies in their homes for dinner and for sleeping and for laundry purposes. Keep Annie well-fed and clean because our name's on the bike. Uh, Between the companionship that she had pretty much the whole way back, the nice accommodations, the practical clothes, which she didn't have on the way there, better physical condition, like you said, and plentiful food... The way back to New York City was practically strewn with roses. It's always faster coming back from somewhere, too. So there's that (laughs) perception. I don't know why that is. I know. It's it's universal. It definitely is universal. She would send telegrams ahead of her route to hoop up interest ahead of her arrival. She'd tell her wild tales. You know, now she was German and she spoke German and Swedish. How about that? The tall tales. One day she'd tell the reporters that she always slept outside. The next time she told the reporters she rarely slept outside. So she was able to have these, you know, build up her story more, build up her persona, build up her brand. She would roll in and provide newspaper copy. Much of the copy was about her, quote, 
tight-fitting bloomer costume. Aha, cha-cha. Don't you attract considerable attention with your novel costume? Asked many a reporter, and her response was, Oh, yes. The people all along these little country towns come out by the hundreds and stare at me as though I'd escaped from a circus. And then there was a pleased smile, like, as nature intended. (laughs) You know? And she was helping it along because she kept stitching her bloomers tighter and tighter as she was going. You know, she stopped for the night and stitched them a little tighter because there was still, you know, they're still flopping around. So they're getting closer and closer to her legs here. So a little more risque at every stitch. (laughs) Ha-cha-cha, I say again. (laughs) She sold autographed photos of herself, which she actually sold. I'm sorry that I was so cynical before. She had them, she sold them. (laughs) Uh, Silk handkerchiefs, which were very light. Little buttons, like pins, to earn money. She had a little moving business. It was like a food truck. (laughs) She also worked in some of the Sterling bike stores to bring in traffic to them and money to herself. So it's kind of a win-win. I mean, she was a person that really, really lived her sponsorship deal. Mm -hmm. She gave them value for their money, I think. She polished her daredevil image at every possible opportunity by telling people things like, I may never again see my native land, but there's the grim shadow of death on us all at our elbow. I think that all this publicity and all this fame that's building is giving her more momentum than even those the great bicycle muscles that she's developed. She might have left originally just to, who knows why, to make money, to get away from her life in the tenement and get away from all the babies and the boringness that was ahead of her. Mm-hmm. But I think that this fame is even better than anything that she had imagined. It's like a drug. It's what mm-hmm. I'm guessing because, you know, she needs more and more of it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So in addition to the many languages she now speaks, <laughs> oh, and the medical school she has already attended, she also went to Harvard, evidently. She is attacked by tramps almost every other day, also is not because of tramps being gentlemen. So simultaneously, those things are happening. Um, she is an orphan. She is an heiress. She is the cousin of a United States congressman. If she was Pinocchio, her nose would have prevented <laughs> her from riding the bike. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. But the biggest lie of all, at least from my perspective, see what you think, is the fading out of her marital status. It wasn't necessarily, although it became so, a lie that she told, but everyone would assume she was single. Right. And and she even said later, part of the wager is that I mustn't entertain proposals of marriage during the course of my trip. Indeed. <laughs> but that might have been Max's only rule. <laughs> Well, everyone assumed there's no husband because no husband would give permission for this kind of cockamamie trip. And she just didn't correct them is how it started out. And the fact that she was the mother of three children was totally under wraps, totally under the radar. People would ask her, now, what are you going to do with your prize money, Miss Londonderry, when you win? And she'd say, why settle down with some good man, of course, (laughs) which was the politically correct thing for her to want A and say, B, 
Well, by this time, even the bloomers were too cumbersome. And she was wearing boys' knickers and a vest and a shirt. She had gotten so many advertising contracts by now that she was covered with signs for things like patent medicines and manufacturers. She had like a whole price thing, depending on where it was going. Like over her boob was going to be like $400. You know, it's going to be more expensive than anything like on the back of her britches. There was, I can't even quote it because I just read it and laughed and didn't write it down. But there was some reporter that said, uh, unfortunately, the people who have chosen certain areas of her anatomy have been duped because although they seem like valuable property, most gentlemen will purposely avoid reading the signs placed in those areas. <laughs> I know. <don't- laughs> What an interesting perspective that (laughs) is. At this point, the press was largely positive. Let me quote the Utica Sunday Journal. Miss Annie Londonderry is the name of the daring young woman who's undertaking a bicycle trip around the world. She believes she can do it and with the grit and enterprise of modern femininity has determined to do it or die in the attempt. (laughs) That's interesting that that was in the Utica paper because right after Utica, she kind of did the first gray area of travel and she hopped a train for a short distance. So she didn't actually bike from Utica to Albany. Sneaky, very sneaky, taking a train the rest of the way to catch the boat, the La Touraine, on its way to France. So a week on a luxury ocean liner is a nice break. So she's been out of Boston for five months now. She's on this boat heading across the Atlantic, and she has 10 more months to get back. Got to keep keep an eye on that time clock. Even though it is probably, question mark, possibly a completely fictional deadline. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's all I'm saying about that. And while she might have been in the gray area um, on the train, while she was on the ship, she was doing little uh, demonstrations of biking. She's biking around the decks. She's biking around the ballroom. She's charming people the whole time. So I guess kind of technically she bicycled a little bit across the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I have not wanted to go on a cruise because of being trapped with people. And I honestly, Mm -hmm. I'm sorry about Annie, but (laughs) I cannot imagine being on deck and having a bicyclist keep passing me. Yeah. Well, yeah. In bloomers or no, now she's in boy pants. (laughs) Knickers. You know, I wore knickers. It was super fashionable. I had purple corduroy knickers with big pearl buttons at the knee. Okay. You'd wear them with frilly white shirts. Yep. Oh my gosh, I have a picture. And I had purple velvet knickers with gold piping up the side and a (laughs) big fluffy white shirt. In my defense, I was like nine. (laughs) (laughs) I was not. (laughs) Yeah. And I never wore that shirt again because I got red wine all over it. Oh, bummer. (laughs) Probably really needy. You know, the good stuff with the screw top back when screw tops were not the good stuff. You know what my husband calls that boxed wine? Although I have to say the boxed wine is a brilliant idea because if you just want one glass, you you know, you just get one. He calls it cardboard O. (laughs) Cardboard O. (laughs) (laughs) That is so brilliant. I don't know if he made it up or read it somewhere. Doesn't matter, but I think it's cute. Um, Okay. So the trip was exciting. But when she got to France, her destination, the customs officials immediately impounded her bicycle. Where is your paperwork? Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's called not planning. And then her money got stolen. Luckily, 
through her hijinks on board, she'd made some friends. You know, what am I supposed to do? The terms of the bet say I can only speak English because you only know English. (laughs) But we're going to leave that behind. One of the friends made her an explanatory sign in French that she could carry and one that she could pin inside of her jacket if the sign was too cumbersome. Um, It basically said, my name is this. I'm doing this. I need to earn money for my trip. Please speak to me in English. You know, so that was helpful. And then another one of her fellow passengers paid her passage to the home of a sterling bike dealer in Paris where she could wait for her bike. That was like the advantage of capering about on deck and making friends is that somebody bailed you out of trouble. Mm -hmm. Well, the French press was not frankly convinced she even was a woman at first. (laughs) (laughs) I know. (laughs) They accused her of being a young man who took this opportunity to trick people. Yeah. They went so far as to say, quote, she belongs to that category of neutered beings, single women without husband or children. Ouch. (laughs) Little did they know the jokes on them. That's right. (laughs) Well, her charm and her tall tales quickly made her somewhat of a beloved figure. French companies, in fact, lined up to add their advertising ribbons to her collection. She gave speeches where she gave such tales of daring do. You'd be surprised she's still alive. Like, mon dieu. We had no idea. And I will tell you just from having French pen pals, they're (laughs) And having just been to France, in the back of their mind, French people still equate America with the Wild West. (laughs) And I'm assuming it's even worse in the 1800s. Um, (laughs) She'd been to a place called Chicago. Where is that? Might as well be Dodge City. (laughs) They don't know. Um, So they're very, very impressed. The American ambassador there gave her an American flag to wrap around her bars and um, fly at appropriate occasions. And she was off out of Paris, escorted by an organized relay of French cyclists, most of the way to Marseille through cold and damp and sleet. It was Christmas time. She, I have to say, might not have appreciated the relay because the second there was a break in the relay, she took advantage of of that situation (laughs) to hop on a train for 170 miles of the journey. (laughs) Though she kept that strictly on the low low. (laughs) Later when they called her out, I mean, much later, she said that was part of the rules, that she could travel. Everything (laughs) she was doing was according to her own rules. Convenient. What a flexible bet this was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a ration of permissible railway travel in the bet. And she would say later that she had to telegraph ahead to the backers to make sure each journey was okay. But nobody commented on the fact that there was no telegram coming back from Boston <laughs> to say, yeah, that's fine. Or no, get your A on the bike. That's right. <laughs> So, hmm, maybe she spun it as like, if they don't respond, I just take the train. Convenient. (laughs) So she gets to Marseille, which is a raffish town full of fishermen, some say pirates, (laughs) you know, um, let's just say exuberant people. And to say that she was the toast of Marseille, the pangrier of Marseille, um, Compared to the coldness of Parisians, I mean, Marseille was all about them, some Annie Londonderry. Mm -hmm. They had to post visitation hours at her hotel. The local paper (laughs) posted when you could come see her. Her fame was so big that thousands of people turned out on the docks to see her steamship take off for parts unknown. Um, 
In fact, the captain of the ship actually turned around and went as close as he could get to that dock again so she could wave to her fans as they departed. (laughs) I love it. So she sets out for Alexandria in Egypt. And I'm sure she had many adventures. This is the thing that we're missing as the story starts to deteriorate. She saw new places. She ate new foods. She met new people. She went to genuine travel destinations and had genuine travel experiences. But the tales she told about her trip through Asia make Indiana Jones look timid, like he's at preschool. She was thrown into a Japanese prisoner of war camp. She had to lift her shoes over the dead bodies of many soldiers. She hunted tigers with unnamed German royalty. She was nearly killed and drowned thousands of times in dramatic ways. (laughs) I love the one where she says she went to Siberia and was able to see what the political climate was like. Okay, that's a little out of your way, but... Sure. And out of her wheelhouse, if you don't mind my being so blunt, because she's super politically savvy, she said that she had gone to Jerusalem and there is a way she could have done it by hiding herself there and then hurrying some other way to catch the boat in a different location. But given her modus operandi, I think she went to the market and bought some what they call lantern slides, uh, mm-hmm. glass photography sold commercially as souvenirs in the local market and then just got back on the boat. (laughs) Yeah, that's really what she did. She would take the boat into the port. Sometimes she would get off right around town. So she's like ridden her bike in that country, get back on the boat and repeat over and over again. (laughs) Well, so some skeptics started to call her on it. There was a paper in Singapore under the headline, 50,000 Fools in Marseille, <laughs> called her a, quote, crank from the land of wagers and exploits. Journalists were starting to do calculations to dig into her background, to mock her for her sort of brass neck, <laughs> as they call it, <laughs> when it came to asking for donations. I mean, let's try this now. Please go to our donate button on our website, thehistorychicks.com. Because we wrestled an octopus with our bare hands um, for the last macaron at Whole Foods. You should read all about it there. So let's see if that works. That's the level of which we are experiencing (laughs) right now. So she must have some kind of mojo that we don't have because I'm almost guaranteeing you I'm not going to get any octopus macaron donations. But she did. She claimed to be a lot of places But she was undermined by the fact that you can just simply get a hold of a ship's manifest. And the public didn't seem to care. The public bought the steak and the sizzle. And Annie didn't care either. Bad press is press. You know, that's what I'm saying. This whole trip, I decided way back in Chicago, this was going to be about the story and not the physical effort. I am going to write roasts of myself. In, in fact, and I'll just telegraph those ahead. Whatever works. Mm-hmm. As, as long as I have eyeballs and wallets, as far as I'm concerned, it's all good. <laughs> you know, she started to be a joke. If there had been like late night with Conan O'Brien, you know, everyone would be talking about the fact that she was traveling, quote, with a bicycle instead of on a bicycle. But she was famous. She was indisputably famous. The problem she had, as far as I'm concerned, is that her Sterling bike had an odometer on it. <laughs> 
That's right. She should have maybe seen that more carefully. So that was troublesome um, that there was kind of hard proof. So by this time, she had, quote, only, only traveled 7,280 miles by the odometer, which is more than I ever will in my whole life. She boarded a boat called the Belgic in Japan for her trip to San Francisco. And when she came home, although San Francisco is on the opposite coast, it's not really home, America seemed unready to accept her enthusiastically. So she's going to have to start again, although she has had time to concoct a cover story about how fast she was able to get through Asia, given that she was on a bicycle and went to Siberia and made side trips to war and tiger hunt and all manner of things. Like, how did you find the time? She said that the bet required reporting in at certain checkpoints, certain cities, the consul or another American representative in such cities with no requirement of biking at all, as long as it preserved the spirit of the trip, which I thought was I'm going to travel around the world on a bicycle. (laughs) But maybe not. (laughs) As we live, we learn and we adapt and we change. That is true. We're seeing evolution in action (laughs) right right. now. (laughs) 15 months of evolution. (laughs) So she started having to build up her fame again from scratch. Kind of a bummer. She still had six months left on her clock, whether that meant six months to get to Chicago or six months to get to Boston. Either way, 15 months was going to be up in six months. And she still had 2,500 miles ahead of her just to get to Chicago. Her fame started to seem, at least to my eyes, a little bit more like notoriety. Phrases like the following. Miss Annie is a hustler for sure. She is not elevating either the sport of cycling or the reputation of her sex. And, quote, she is now completing an alleged bicycle ride around the world. Are starting to appear in the paper. But yet... Her lectures were standing room only. Even though her credibility was at an all-time low, everybody likes a circus. Nobody went away from the lecture feeling like they'd wasted their money. And um, she was, in fact, doing ice-breaking work for the future of women in sports. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Oh, I definitely see what you're saying. She is a trailblazer for that. No question about it. So men are saying things like the spectacle of females straining every muscle, perspiring at every pore, and bent over their handlebars in a weak imitation of their brothers is enough to disgust the most enthusiastic of wheelmen. Here's the thing. Annie doesn't care. Nope. And I think that about um, icebreakers, if you think about them in the Arctic, they go through and just chop up the water and they're strong and they're more powerful. And the people, i.e. the boats that come after them, benefit from the chopping up of the ice, even if they're not as strong as the icebreaker. So I think she, if nothing else, is a very powerful force for chopping up societal expectations. So there you go. What a lovely metaphor. (laughs) And she did prove herself physically fit. Luckily, this came sort of near the end of her trip. She couldn't have done this at the beginning. She actually proved that she had a racing time over 30 miles an hour on that bike. I mean, she she literally rode it in front of people and they timed her. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also did little um, exhibitions that, you know, the way she can handle a wheel would make a male expert ashamed of himself for his lack of skill. So she did have genuine physical prowess with her bike at this point. And we also have to remember that the people that were writing those articles about her, you know, she's doing a disservice to the sport. Those are the same people that wrote the list, the 41 things. Mm-hmm. These are the same reporters, the same, I'm sorry, men. Yep. Keep going, Annie. When she did head out of San Francisco, she was not alone again. 
not unusual. This time, she was with a cyclist named Mark Johnson, and he's going to travel the entire 380 miles to Los Angeles with her. They must have taken some seriously crazy long route because it took her five weeks. Now, they did have a legitimate accident that probably sidelined them for a while, but the last 114 miles of it, she did in one day. So there's a big mystery. (laughs) I don't know that there is a big mystery. It's (laughs) two physically fit, attractive people in the open air, in beautiful scenery, um, not hurrying. That's right. To get back to where people are going to scrutinize their behavior. That's right. And here we are. How many years later? I, you know, whatever. Girl, do uh, your thing. I'm yep. just saying, I'm just saying they had to, they couldn't really do that through the cities. So, um, yeah, that accident they had is another incident of actual bicycle face. She ended up slammed kind of against a rock wall and had a black and blue right side of her face for a while. Mm-hmm. Which was a super attractive bicycle face, but not what the founding fathers were objecting to. So she reached El Paso exactly one year after her departure from Boston, a town second only to Marseille in its enthusiasm for her, where Annie said probably the most honest thing she's ever said. If she'd known how hard it was going to be before she set out, she never would have started out. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. But the Wild West is just prime audience for this kind of spectacular occurrence. I keep reading in stories of the Old West that tall tales are different than lies. Like if a guy lies that he didn't steal your horse and there it is in his barn. Okay, you can shoot him. But if he lies and says things about like a giant blue man comes out of the forest and blah, 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 and he's entertaining enough, that's not a lie. That's creativity. (laughs) You know, that kind of thing. And Annie sure brought the tall tales, lurid tales of, you know, bloody war and savage natives who thought her bike was a demon. That's my favorite. And kept trying to attack her tires with knives to make the demon stop walking. (laughs) She had her detractors and she had her defenders. And one paper wrote about her that she was a fraud. And another would respond, this is like slow motion um, beef. (laughs) (laughs) Another would respond with, it would be refreshing if our noble competitor bothered to report something, a medium near the truth once in a while. And Annie did not help because she hinted that one of her detractors was a drunk who had been rebuffed in his advances to her and that it was revenge for that that caused him to slag her off in his paper and she stooped to a little bit of character assassination and drama and then left it behind her on her way out of the Wild West. People were actually starting to say she rides a great deal on trains and ships and like many travelers, she has a vivid imagination. The incidents of travel are growing in number and startlingness the further she gets from the scene of their supposed location. So she was a controversial celebrity, for sure. That's a good way to put it. And controversy sells. Still does. Yes, yes. Well, Annie broke her wrist. Only her second legitimate accident. <laughs> I, I think. I mean, there's been many, many times she's been, quote, in peril. But she actually broke her wrist on her way through Iowa. She can't even tell that story straight. Either there was a collision with a farm truck where the farmer cursed her up and down and called her this and that and chased her everywhere. Or she um, ran into, is it a herd of pigs? What's a group of pigs? I just have pigs crossing the road. (laughs) I don't know. Now I'm all disturbed that I don't know what a herd of pigs pigs. is. It's not. hmm, I don't know. It's a posse of pigs. A bacon of pigs. (laughs) She told both stories that um, pigs got in front of her and she ended up tipping over. And and she said, 
Like, where did this come from? Well, if I'd broken my arm in France, I'd have been showered with money already, which makes me sort of not like her anymore. Like, it's gone a little too far. Thank you. That's exactly what I was thinking. I was like, oh, come on. You're milking the people of Iowa, trying to make them feel badly about their fellow farmer who got mad at you. I... Yeah, I didn't like that very much either. So that's the part, I don't know. I'm sure there are many parts where other people are like, and we're done. But that's (laughs) where I was. (laughs) So in Chicago, the only people who greeted her seems to be Sterling Manufacturer employees and cycle clubs. And she did trade her well-worn Sterling for a new bike and $400, which she said just put her over the top for her earnings for the bet. Remember, she was supposed to be making $5,000 on the trip. Um... I am not understanding if the bet ended in Chicago or ended in Boston because technically she's already covered the distance from Boston to Chicago. Mm-hmm. And she claims right about now to have, quote, received her 10000 from the wager. So, I mean, since the bet is made up of thin cloth, I guess it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? That $10,000 is just like a big mystery to me because a lot of sources you're going to read, they're Say she crossed the finish line in Boston and claimed her $10,000. But did she or did she get it in Chicago or did she not get it at all? Because who did it come from? Correct. So if you read that it definitely she collected it, just put a question mark on that. So, yeah, the only source we really have that she received it at all, of course, was Annie. And we've seen <laughs> the sterling, ha, not to be such a point, the sterling qualities of, of her oh, truth-telling. Oh, oh mm. ah, very good. <laughs> well, so she got to Boston, and there was a significant lack of fanfare, I must say, after all of that. And I don't know if the bad press had reach there or if the public was just frankly tired of this stunt writing because there had been copycats out of the woodwork since Nellie Bly went around the world. Mm-hmm. And so it was less shocking and less exciting than once it might have been. And I have to say, it's kind of like podcasting. Like five years ago, if you said you had a podcast, people were excited and interested. And now if you say one, they literally roll their eyes. Mm-hmm. I know. I've noticed that eye roll. The allure of the stunt is over a little. So Annie Londonderry was back to being Mrs. Max Kupchevsky, a stranger in the house, I'm guessing, really, as far as the family was concerned. Max evidently never mentioned her trip at all ever again in his entire life. And she would not talk about it in his presence. So that says something. It must have been a real sore spot. In their marriage. I mean, how could it not be? Yeah. So whether with the actual wager money, where wherever that is, or with the $5,000 she'd earned on the way, which is $150,000. This is a big stake to start mm-hmm. out with, even if you don't have Boston sugar wager money in your pocket. You're still doing okay. Uh, Annie moved with Max and the kids to New York City, where she got a job at the New York World newspaper as a staunch journalist. And she used to write under either the name The New Woman or tellingly under the byline Nellie Bly Jr. Yeah, her first story was about her trip. And she did. She put the byline as Nellie Bly Jr. Now, Nellie Bly, at this point, she was married. She was off. She wasn't a journalist at this particular point. So I guess she could use it. I don't know. It wasn't Nellie Bly's real name either. Right. Well, at least she put the junior on there. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Right. She wrote about 
matchmakers by infiltrating and acting like she needed a matchmaker. She went undercover in a religious cult. She wrote about an all-woman stock exchange. And I was excited until I realized the timeline doesn't match because in our episode about Victoria Woodhull, Mm -hmm. she had started the very first all-woman stock exchange, but this is 25 years after that. And it was still a novelty enough to warrant a story in the world. She also purportedly solved, and that's in quotes, air quotes. I can't do both of my fingers as I'm holding a notebook, but just say both of my fingers. Solved a case of a crazy murderer stalking the countryside outside of Boston. Um, The wild man of Royalton, he was named. The local populace was terrorized. They thought they had some kind of psycho in their midst. Both her involvement at all and the case as a whole seem far more exciting in print than in real life. The first victim of the mysterious wild man of Royalton turned out to be the wild man of Royalton. It wouldn't be even a good CSI episode. (laughs) Most people thought he already did it. And it was pretty much like everyone's like, you know, he did it. And then she comes along and says, I've solved the murder with my forensic abilities. And they're like, okay, sister. (laughs) And she just printed that, you know, all of her daring do and the night and how there was fog and the bullet hole was here and the smell of this. And it was very dramatic. So Now, were you able to get a timeline of when she stopped writing? There is a window. She gets back when she's 25. And by the time she's 30, she's literally living in a boarding house in California by herself, Mm -hmm. um, working as a salesperson. So I would say there is a simple five-year window at which she worked at the world, if not a smaller window. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I figured it about two years. Is right. The closest that I got. Because less than two years after she returned, Annie had a fourth child. I swear to you, I, she just must be the most fertile. Like, <laughs> it's like <laughs> any exposure to Max and you have another baby. Um, so this child was named Frida. Annie was n- not very maternal. I have to say, much to my shock, that as each child had reached the age of around five, they were sent away to Catholic boarding schools. The son actually went to a boarding school in Quebec. Catholic boarding schools, and these are Jewish kids. I I mean, it happens. I get it. Three-year-old Frida, who was not old enough for boarding school, was living in Maine with a friend of Annie's older sister, Sarah's. So all the children were farmed out ASAP, and then Annie moved away to California. And we don't know that story. We Mm -hmm. don't know that story. And even if Annie had told us what had happened, (laughs) <laughs> there would there be enough grains of salt to understand what happened but that some dark force was occurring i wonder if it is and it all goes back to women not having opportunities and getting forced in a box too early and their wants and desires being dismissed i mean she'd been on an adventure of her own making and mm. now she's back in this box again and i i would say that's the root of it yeah so she did come back to max and in new york city At some point after the crisis in California and over the course of the next few decades, she ran both a garment business and a novelty business called the Grace Strap and Novelty. And I could not for the (laughs) life of me figure out what that is. But the fact is, there are a lot of businesses called Strap and Novelty. I'm trying to figure out what that is. There's a lot. I mean, you look and you can see ads for them. The so-and-so Strap and Novelty business. And I wonder if Strap was slang for something. I have no idea. Anyway, I think that's a rabbit hole I would like to. I didn't have time to go down, but I was just, I was thinking, what on earth? Is Strap a misprint? No. 
It's not. Well, they employed about 25 people. It was a relatively lucrative business, but the children did not fare so well. Her oldest daughter, Molly, became a nun. That's how much Catholic school stuck for her. Um, And she was estranged from the family for the rest of Annie's life. She became a nun and she was out of the family picture. Annie herself said that she disinherited Molly. I don't think, and it was Sister Marie Tadea of Sion is what she would like to be known by. Sister Marie was not the person that estranged herself from her family. She would write letters and Max and Annie would burn them without reading them. Um, Max and Annie insisted that their younger children keep her lifestyle a secret. They became estranged or at least distanced from existing family members, even Bennett, who had practically raised everybody um, because they had to keep this secret. And Simon and Libby and Frida... um, Later, a granddaughter said that they had all been damaged by their upbringing. And I think it was hard for the other children. They didn't know which way to jump. Simon and the youngest child, Frida, idolized their mother. This is a letter that Simon wrote to his sister, Sister Marie. You forget who your mother is. The world-famous globe girdler has no charm for you, has she? A woman who is good enough to interview every living ruler and sovereign in the world? God, how can you remain away as you do? And I'm thinking, what is she telling you guys? She's interviewed every sovereign ruler in the world? Yeah. Um, et cetera. So the tales grew, grew, grew after she had gotten back. Um, so I don't know. I'm sad about that. I, I don't know what to say. I think this epic adventure had detrimental effects for the people closest to her. Mm -hmm. And maybe her too. Mm. So Max died in 1946 and Annie Cohen Kupchowski Londonderry, girdler of the globe, died herself a little later on November 11th, 1947. She was 77 years old, and her and Max are both buried in the Riverside Cemetery in Saddlebrook, New Jersey. You know, find a grave, the website that shows you the graves. There's there's pictures of her. She has an entry, but there's no pictures of her grave. So if somebody could find that and upload it to find a grave, that would be awesome. <laughs> oh, good. And that will do it for the life of Annie Londonderry. And now it is time for media. As far as biographies go, there's one. (laughs) (laughs) A full biography, but it's very inclusive. Um, It is around the world on two wheels, one woman, one bicycle, one unforgettable journey by Peter Zoitlin, who is her great nephew. So he had family lore. He had very little bit of family um, documentation. He had her granddaughter who is an an older woman, Mm -hmm. Um, and he was a journalist. So I took what he said at face value. I had no choice. (laughs) Right. And within this book is the entire text of Annie's world article about her trip. Mm -hmm. So you are able to read in its entirety the whole text. She never did write a book. (laughs) Isn't that just something? Of all the things not to do, she didn't write a book about her experiences. Um, Maybe she was worried that the book would be too concrete and she couldn't explain any discrepancies. Or she would have had to work on it in front of Max. Oh, okay. Maybe. I don't, I, I, we can make this up like she made up her rules because we don't know the truth. Right. 
Peter also runs a website, andylondonderry.com. It has quite a few resources if you're interested in learning more about her, lots of photos that we don't have on our website. Um, So you might want to go there too. So you can also read the entire text of Around the World on a Bicycle by Mr. Stevens at gutenberg.org. And like I said, just be very aware of the casual blithe racism you will encounter. Mm. He's never malicious as far as his intent, but sometimes it comes off that way. Like Chang Shi, the last episode we had, her story really fits into compilation books because it's not very long. Uh, so she, her story is in a lot of them. I ran across one that I had not seen before and I really liked it. Uh, it's below a YA level, above a middle grade. So whatever that is. Mm. It's called A World of Her Own, 24 Amazing Women Explorers and Adventurers by Michael Elson Ross. I thought it was a really nice collection of uh, people who are still alive and people who are not. So it seemed very well researched in short, you know, there's short entries, but still, I really enjoyed that one. And of course, we need to have a big coffee table book. This one is called Bicycle, the Definitive Visual History, and it's edited by Chani Pinford. It's pretty much exactly what it says. Lovely photographs, very Instagram worthy photos, giving the entire history of bicycles. If you are in Chicago, the Museum of Science and Industry, which definitely hit that, has a special exhibit that is in a very obscure place. So check your map. We encountered it by accident while trying to find a bathroom of the history of the evolution of bicycles. And they do have the penny farthing. Um, so anyway, it is a visual representation that you can just walk down a long hallway and see how bikes changed over the years. And I highly recommend it, but definitely check the map. There is one documentary out there. It was produced and directed by Jillian Willman. It is not available yet. We've been in contact with her to try and find out if there's a way that you guys can um, watch it because I thought it was very charming. It's about 26 minutes. It's really short, but it's just really, really well done. I can give you the trailer for it. I can show you the most amazing interview that the director did with a baby on her lap. She doesn't miss a beat. Like she's just answering the questions and this baby's like wiggling all over the place. It was just such a relatable thing for anybody who's ever had to have a serious conversation while holding a baby. I loved it so much. And it's in contrast to that reporter who tries to hold it together as the kids creep in the room. Remember that one? Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. Where he couldn't get up because he had no pants on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The whole working from home thing. um, Maybe he has learned to put the lower half of his clothing on. (laughs) There is a YouTube video that I'll put in the show notes. It's called The Ballad of Annie Londonderry, and it was from a stage production called Spin. It's very cute. I liked it. And then I went back into the drier parts of history to learn a little bit more about her background. And I have a website researching the history of Jewish population in Boston, the education of Jewish girls in general. Why did the Jews leave Latvia? These are just different articles that we'll post on the show notes in case you would like to go down these rabbit holes. (laughs) And also the Tenement Museum in New York City is A, worth a visit because they've recreated different eras and nationalities of tenements. And they have a website at tenement.org that is worth checking out to get a little bit of a mental picture of the early part of Annie's life. I always love to bring up this website um, when we talk about Jewish women. It's the Jewish Women's Archives. Annie has an entry. It won't tell you anything that we just didn't 
but the whole site is just full of Jewish women who've you know done remarkable things in their life, and I really love that one. I also have quite a few uh, rabbit holes for you to fall down about Lithia Water, oh, <laughs> including a link to the resort. <laughs> Well, there you go. It's too bad they can't send you a scratch and sniff sticker because I would actually be interested to know what it smells like, but I don't necessarily want to pay for a plane ticket to find it out. Well, you can order it online and it did cross my mind for one moment that I should probably do it, you know, like we did with Lydia Pinkham. <laughs> but then I decided, no. <laughs> I still have that Lydia Pinkham in my medicine cabinet. Do you really? Yeah. That stuff was vile. Sorry, Lydia. <laughs> Well, that'll about do it for our further resources. Whether or not she was a flim-flam artist, the fact is Annie Londonderry did genuinely travel around the world in an era where women mostly stayed within 10 miles of their homes. So that part is indisputable. How she did it and how she got there is the part that is a little bit of a question mark. But she did break new ground for women for bravery, for bicycling, for freedom, for women's power, and sheer nerve, frankly. And in closing, we'll leave you with a quote from Annie herself that talks a little bit about the trip, a little bit about women's rights, and finishes up in classic Annie Londonderry style with an unverifiable tall tale. I firmly believe that if I had worn skirts, I should not have been able to make the trip. It must not be thought that I lost the attention which is supposed to be associated with feminine apparel. I was everywhere treated with courtesy. And for the benefit of my sisters who hesitate about donning bloomers, I will confess I received no less than 200 proposals of marriage. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Bye. If you learned something today, please tell a friend or two or leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. We're starting to get excited about appearing at PodX. There's something for everyone at this conference. It's produced by the same people who brought the world LeakyCon, the Harry Potter conference. And you know I love that. We will be doing a live show, several panels, and a game show so far, and maybe we should have a meetup. So go to podx.com and get your tickets to Nashville. We would love to see you there. It's May 31st to June 2nd of this year. The songs today are Something Something, I swear that is really the song's name, from Jasmine Brunch. And the end song is That's What Hopes Are For by Emma Wallace, both used by Special License from iLicense. I appreciate your concern When you say I've got a lot to learn You say one day The piper will have to get paid And all good things have got to end And I have been on a good thing bend You say you know it's best to keep my expectations low But I've got my head in the clouds They're up safe from the madding crowds My hopes are high and more Cause that's what hopes are for I build castles in the air And I plan to live up While there's still eggs 
It's easier than when they've got legs. Don't hold my horses. Give 'em free rein of courses, and I don't wait for that shoe to fall. No, I don't even wait at all. I look, just leap. I'd sell my cow for some magic beans.